Amen. Matthew chapter 4. Um, and we'll just read at verse, start at verse 16. It says, The people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. And from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen. The latter part of verse 16 says, And to them which sat in the region and the shadow of death, light is sprung up. Amen. What does that statement mean, to be in the shadow of death? Uh, all of humanity lives in that shadow. All of us live in that shadow, at least in the natural sense. When a child is born, as beautiful and as complete and as whole as a newborn baby is, within the DNA of that child, at a level that we cannot even fully comprehend, there is a sinful nature. There is a natural tendency toward things that do not please God. And that's why we've used the example many times of how nobody teaches our children how to tell a lie. But when the time comes and they don't want to get in trouble or they feel like if they tell the truth there might be consequences, they will fabricate something and tell, they will declare their innocence even though they may be very, very guilty. And what happens, if I can try to paint a little bit of a picture today, when that nature first acts sinfully, Something is activated in that child that begins a process where death begins its claim on that life. Uh, the Bible does give us some idea of what the average lifespan of man will be, and that varies from continent to continent and society to society. But the truth that is inescapable is that these bodies have a use-by date. They expire. Some people live longer than others. I noticed on the news overnight that there was a lady, I think she was in Italy, I think her name was Emma, and she just passed away at 117 years of age. They, I think they thought she was the oldest living person. Uh, not only that, they think that she is the, the last of the people who was born in the, the end of the 19th century. She was born in late 1899 and passed away just now in 2017. And so they, they think that she is the last person who was alive that was born in that century. And 117s, that's not bad doing. That's a long time. And in the article it mentioned that her doctor had given her particular advice about things she should and shouldn't eat that he didn't think were good for her, but she chose to ignore her doctor's advice. And I guess if you get to that age, you're qualified to make your own decisions about what's good for you and what's not. It's kind of humorous that a possibly 30 or 40-year-old doctor is telling a lady that's over 100 what she should eat to be healthy. But sooner or later, these bodies do expire because the Bible lets us know that all of us have sinned. All of us. Not one of us is immune from that condition, but we've all sinned. Not all of us are bank robbers. Not all of us are murderers. Uh, but all of us have sinned at one level or another. And with that sin comes a consequence that the Bible says it describes it as wages, that is death. 
So we've earned those wages. Our actions have earned those wages in our lives. And so what happens when we sin, we earn the wages of death. Now that death is really a two-step process. It's a death that happens in this natural body, that when that time comes that these bodies will go into the grave. But it is also a spiritual death that speaks firstly of separation from God in this life, but secondly of separation from God in eternity. The Bible makes it clear when you look in both the Old and the New Testament, it says that, that there will be those, the Bible uses quite uh, picturesque language, it says that sleep in the dust. It says when, when they rise again, there will be some that rise to everlasting reward and some to everlasting damnation. And so spirit, that death that comes from sin has that physical application, but also has that spiritual application and eternal fulfillment. And so from the moment that we are sinners, we are, it's almost like a magnet. Death draws us to itself. That consequence draws us. And no matter how hard in the natural we fight against it, no matter how conscientious we are about how we look after ourselves, and even if you like that 117-year-old lady who ate three eggs every single day for breakfast, no matter how, whatever your secret me method is to keep yourself alive, that magnetic pull doesn't go away. It draws humanity towards it, eventually taking hold of them. And the Scripture says that those that sat in the region of the shadow of death, to them a light has sprung up. To them there is a light that has come. John 1 tells us that the light shone in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not, which, which is really a twofold statement. It speaks of creation. When the earth was without form and void and, dark, and darkness was on the face of the waters, and then he said, let there be light. But it also speaks about when he would become incarnate or when God would be made mankind because it says that John bore witness of that light. And he was that light which was to come, and he has shone in the darkness of humanity. But until we are able to take advantage of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that magnetic pull, if you like, that, that drawing that death has on us, we cannot shake it off. We cannot find a way to disconnect the cords that bind us to death because we are in that shadow of darkness. And that death is going to come to all of us. Amen. Bless the Lord. But there is hope in the church today because He came to bring us deliverance. He came to say there is an escape. There is a way out. There is a way that you cannot be kept in that vacuum, in that magnetic pull that death has upon us. Amen. Because if we, if we read... We're going to jump around a little bit this morning, but if you go to John chapter 14, along the way I hope you'll get the idea that the resurrection is important. In John chapter 14, Jesus is in that time we know as the Last Supper. He's speaking some very, very powerful words from around about halfway through chapter 13, right up to about chapter 17, I think it is, he is imparting some very powerful things to his disciples because he knows how close his death is. He knows how close the cross is and he's wanting to try to 
impart some things to them. And as much as he made that effort, I don't think they really got it until later on. But he, he laid a foundation that they would understand a little bit down the track. But in verse 30, right toward the very end of John chapter 14, the Lord said, Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. The prince of this world cometh. You see, the enemy thought that the cross was a victory. It was a victory, but not for him. It was a victory for the Lord. It was a victory for the church. It was a victory for humanity. And the Lord said, he's coming, but he's got nothing in me. And what that means is that there was no fault in him. There was no sin in him. There was nothing in Jesus that the devil, the Bible describes the devil as the accuser of the brethren. Or he's the one that stands and points his finger in your face and says, you have failed God. You have sinned, you've let God down, and you're going to hell. There was nothing that the enemy could find in Jesus Christ that he could use to accuse him. He said, he's coming, but he's got nothing in me. There was, there, there, he said, it doesn't matter how hard he tries. He, even, even when mankind tried Jesus Christ, they had to pay false witnesses. You read of Jesus' trial, they had to pay people to make stuff up. Because such was the caliber of man that he was, that there was nothing in him. You see, the devil is the tempter. And so when you and I have that sinful nature in us, he comes along and lays little traps here and there. Like a little bird, he leaves breadcrumbs trying to lead us into a snare. And when in our, in our sometimes ignorance and sometimes willingness and sometimes somewhere in between the two, we fall into that snare and the trap shuts. He, makes, he, he connects us to guilt. And he says, you're a sinner. And he connects us to that magnetic force. That's his purpose. His purpose as he goes to and fro throughout the earth is to connect, if I can use that word, all of humanity to that pull that death has. But when he came to Jesus Christ, there was no nothing to hang on to. There was no connection. There was no loophole. There was no flaw. There was no corruption in him for him to look for somewhere to clip on to Jesus and attach him to that drawing force that the rest of humanity was subject to. In fact, when you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and you can turn there if you want to, or you can just let me read it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, let's start at 51. I don't need all of it just at the moment. We'll go back to some of it. But 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, which is a direct quote from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, I believe it is. And then in verse 55 and 56, this is what I want you to see. It says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death 
is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. So what does that tell us? That tells us that the law that God gave revealed to humanity that we were sinners. That's where the strength is, because it is the law that reveals sin and says, hey, you're guilty. And the sting of that, the sting of death is sin. In other words, when we are sinners, it is that that causes death to be so painful, not just in these natural bodies, but in what's yet to come. But because Jesus said, the enemy comes and he has nothing in me, because he had no sin, death had no sting. So death could not hold him because it had no authority over him because he had kept the law. As long as he was sinless, death couldn't hold on to him. It was like he was, I don't know, made out of Teflon. He was non-stick no matter how death tried to hold him because he had no sin, it had no sting. And he was able to go into the grave, not to feel the pain of it, so to speak, in the sense of that sting, and to come out of it because death could not hold him down. We sang about it this morning. Now, the Bible tells us that there were other people that we know rose from the dead. We can think of Lazarus. We can think of the widow's son. Even in the Old Testament, there were people that were miraculously risen from the dead. But those people died again. You see, when Lazarus went into the tomb, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what his condition was before he died. But when he went into the tomb and he was in there for four days, Jesus came. Lazarus' sisters thought that Lazarus was gone too far. They believed Jesus could heal him. They didn't believe he could resurrect him. But Jesus said to, his, to I think it was Martha, he said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he shall rise again in the resurrection. She, the Jews believed that there was a coming resurrection day. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he asked them in something of a symbolic fashion to roll away the stone. And he called to Lazarus and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And that man that was dead, that man that had died, why had he died? Because of sin. It wasn't that he was, a, that he was punished for his sin, but because he was a sinful humanity, death had a sting. Death stung him and he was in the grave. But Jesus was able to reach beyond death into that grave and to call Lazarus to come back. Amen. But, the thing is, while they celebrated, and I'm sure Lazarus celebrated as well, Lazarus's body and this Lazarus's life, part two, or chapter two, he had before grave and after grave and then grave again. But Lazarus's life in its second chapter, he was still being drawn by that force. He was still had a sinful nature. He still wasn't living the way he needed to live for the Lord completely. And like everybody else, that drawing force was in Lazarus's life. And if Lazarus had a bad back before he went into the grave the first time, he probably had a bad back when he came out. If he had a bung knee, he probably... We don't know what was wrong with him, but when Jesus called him out of the tomb, his body was not glorified because he went back to the tomb. And everybody you read about, it doesn't tell us, but we understand from the Word of God that everybody that rose from the dead except for Jesus at one point or another went back to the grave. 
because the sting was still there. But Jesus said, he's got nothing in me. He said, when I pass through that grave, there's nothing there that can hold me down. He could go in and he could come out. Why? Because death could not hold him. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And that's where you and I are today. If we have not obeyed the gospel, that force pulls on us. It pulls on us. You know, these bodies, if the Lord tarries, these bodies will pass away. We might get to be 117. We might break that lady's record and get to 118. I can't even imagine being 118 years old. But even if you do, your time will still come. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, when he was writing to the church, Paul said this. He said, I show you a mystery. He said this, we shall not all sleep. In other words, he said, not everybody will die because he believed in the imminent return of the Lord. But then he said, but we shall all be changed. He said, if you're in the church, and I believe this is the message for us today, there may be some here that are alive when the Lord returns. There may be some that have gone ahead to meet him in the advance party. But we shall all be changed. Because what happened at resurrection for Jesus Christ, you see, when he, when he came the first time, when he was born in a manger, when he grew up, the Bible says that he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant and was willing to suffer. But when he rose again, even though he was a resurrected man, he was glorified. There was something about the resurrected Christ that was different from the one that went to the cross. Because the Bible says that they were all in that room together and the door was barred and he just went boom and appeared in the room. And yet when it's, it scared the living daylights out of those guys, he said, give me something to eat. He ate some things. He said, still, I'm not a spirit. Handle me. I'm, I'm flesh and bones. But he was glorified. Lazarus's body eventually faced more and more corruption and they, bur they buried Lazarus the second time. But when that day comes, when that day comes and the trumpet sounds and Lazarus rises from the dead, you know, when we get to heaven, he's going to have that testimony. I rose from the dead twice. Most of you guys here, you did it once. But me and the widow's son and the, the widow's son in the Old Testament, and a few others here and there, we rose twice. But the body that Lazarus has, when he rises again, will not have a bad back. It won't have a bung knee. It won't have any problems, but it will be a glorified body. Because the Scripture says that no flesh should glory in his presence which means that this corrupt flesh, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 15, you might still be there. In verse 50, he said, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. He said, so in this state that we are in now, something's got to change. Something has got to change. He said, that's why, he said, we shall all be changed. He said, in that moment... In that twinkling of an eye, these corrupt bodies shall put on incorruption. We can't even begin to comprehend that. We can't even begin to comprehend what that means. But we shall put on incorruption. These mortal bodies shall put on immortality. That word simply means that these bodies that are going to die shall put on eternal life. Death, that, that drawing force will be gone. 
You see, when we're born again of water and spirit, and this is part of where I want to get to this morning, when you've been washed in His blood and you've been filled with His spirit, even though this body might die, there is something that isn't pulling anymore because there's a new life that we have that is pulling us towards Him, that is causing us to be looking upwards. That's why the Scripture says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, that it doesn't matter what happens in this life, that's our hope. Our hope is the return of Jesus Christ as long as we are born again of water and spirit. But un- unless we're born again, we're still being pulled. We're still being, there is a sting that waits for us. The Apostle Paul understood what he was saying when he said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He wasn't afraid to die. He wasn't some sort of weird person that wanted to harm himself. But he understood that even if he went into the grave, the sting was gone. He knew that if he went into the grave, whether it was shipwrecked or stoned or however I think tradition says in the end, they, they cut his head off. But he knew that even if he died in this life, the sting was gone. Because that death was not going to lead him to eternal death. But rather he knew that if this body died, that he would be present with the Lord. He knew that the sting was taken out and that he would go to be in the presence of the Lord. And so even though we know that in this life these bodies get old, these bodies corrupt, these bodies will die, if we're born again of water and spirit, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead shall also quicken these mortal bodies. It makes us alive now, and when that trumpet sounds... When he calls his church home to be with him, if we're covered with his blood, if we're full of his spirit, there's nothing that can hold us down. There's nothing that can hold us back. Just as death could not hold him, it will not hold us. We may be in the grave a little longer than three days, but when that trumpet sounds, when that old song says on that great getting up morning, when that trumpet sounds, we're going to be with him. Because he said, I am the resurrection. And I am the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That chapter, that whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is the message of the resurrection from the dead. Paul comes to the Corinthians and he said, you know, if, if some of you say that the dead rise not, he said, then Christ is not raised. He said, if the dead don't rise, then Jesus is still in the grave. And if Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain and you are yet in your sins. He said, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ, or those that have died before he's returned, they're perished. And he went on to say, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. He was saying, if, if, if we're not looking to eternity, if we don't believe that he's risen from the dead, then, then in this life, we've got a false hope. We've got an empty hope. Hallelujah. But he says, Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And every man in his order, Christ the firstfruits. He was the first one. To defeat death. Lazarus was brought back from the dead. He didn't defeat death. Death got him in the end again. But Jesus defeated death. He was the first fruits 
and then afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. Amen. We need to be washed in his blood. We need to be filled with his spirit because when he returns, you see, this is why, this is why and again, I'm not on an anti-Easter thing, but if, if the Easter weekend is the only time that somebody turns their attention toward the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's not enough. Because you can believe that he rose from the dead and not go to heaven. You can believe that he rose on the morning of the third day and not be saved from your sins. Amen. My wife referenced it, but in Matthew chapter 28, the Bible says that the Pharisees and the leaders, they said to Pilate, you know, he spoke about rising from the dead. We want to make sure that doesn't happen. It's amazing that his enemies were more worried about that than his disciples were. But he said, we want to make sure that his disciples don't sneak in during the night and take his body out and hide it somewhere and say, look, he rose from the dead. And so the scripture says that they set a watch. Now, tradition has that usually in pictures as two Roman soldiers, but it doesn't tell us how many people were there. It just says they said there could have been more than two. There might have been two. There might have been ten. We don't know. But they put guards on the tomb. Now, Mark and Luke and John just tell you that Mary and the, the other ladies came to the tomb early in the morning and the stone was open. They went, wow, what's going on here? But Matthew's gospel says that the angel of the Lord came down, rolled away the stone and sat on it. And that his countenance was like lightning. There was something incredibly supernatural about this angelic being that came down and rolled the stone away. And it tells us that the guard, let me read it to you. And behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. And his countenance was like lightning, and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. You know who the first people that believed in the resurrection were? The guards. They were the first people that believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They saw the angel. They saw the stone. Now, I don't know if they actually saw him come out of the tomb or not, but trust me, they believed. They believed in what they'd seen. But when you read on, it tells us that that they went back. Where are we? In verse 11 of chapter 28, it says, Now when they were going, behold, some of the watch, that's the guards, came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they went back and they told the Pharisees. You know, so they said, you know, you put us there to guard this thing, but, you know, that was, that was above it. We didn't get paid enough for that sort of stuff. You know, guarding a dead man on a stone, that's okay. But there's angels and terrifying. We don't get enough money for that sort of thing. And they went back and they told the rulers. And the rulers just talked about, you know, what are we going to do? This is only going to get out of hand. It's going to go crazy. And it says they gave large money unto the soldiers and told them to say, His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. But the first people that witnessed the resurrection power were idol-worshipping Roman soldiers. They were at the tomb, but their belief alone was not enough. 
their belief. And so if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that's a good start. But we have to do more than just believe in the sense of we believe it happened. Romans chapter 6, if you'll turn there with me. And let's start at verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Paul is writing to the Roman church here, and he's been, to give you a little bit of background, he's been talking about being saved by grace and being saved by faith and how the works of the law can't save a person. And he, but he makes it very clear. He said, just, just because we're in grace, it doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. We still have to live a righteous life. And he said, just like he died, we have to be dead to sin. We have to repent from our sins. We have to turn away from those things. And just like he was buried, we are buried with him in baptism. So what he is saying is, to to slow it down a bit in case you're not familiar with this, is that Jesus went to the cross to die for sin. You and I have to say, Lord, I don't want to be a sinner. We have to repent of our sins. That word simply means that we turn around. That involves recognizing that we're sinners and turning ourselves away from sin. But then he was taken from the cross and he was put in a tomb. And the Bible says that when we are buried with him, that it is like, well, I'm sorry, when we are baptized with him, it is the same as if we were buried with him. Now, we don't travel to the Middle East and try and find his tomb and, you know, get put in the hole in the ground and put a stone over the hole and spend a couple of nights there to say that we're buried with him because that would be pointless. But when we are baptized with him and we are put under the water, it is a type or a symbol of what happened when he was buried. But he also said that as he came out of the tomb, so also should we have newness of life. That means that when we are filled with this, because the Bible says if the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwell in you, he shall quicken your mortal bodies. Now, quicken means to make alive. When something is quickened, it's made alive. Our mortal bodies has a twofold application. It talks about right now. We have newness of life right now when we receive the Holy Ghost in these mortal bodies. We, the Scripture says you are the temples of the Holy Ghost. And so when we are filled with His Spirit, there is life that comes into us now. But just as He was resurrected, when that day comes, whether we're alive or whether we sleep in the dust, to use the biblical language, that same spirit shall make us alive with him. And that process that he spoke about in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, in a moment, will be glorified. And so that newness of life happens now and is completed when he returns for his church. But then it says this in verse 5, For if we have been planted together, who's the together? Us and Jesus. In the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. 
Just as he defeated death, so shall we. Amen. Now, that, again, I'm going to maybe go out on a little, limb, little bit of a limb here and say that also has twofold. We can defeat death right now. Amen. We're not afraid of the grave. It doesn't mean that we're eternal right now. But death does not hold us because when we are covered with his blood, the sting's gone. When we are covered with the blood of Jesus, that sting is taken out of us. But it's, as you can see, it's more than just it's Easter time. Let's think about Jesus being crucified and rising from the dead on the third day. Believing that's a great place to start. But you've got, to take, you've got to take that belief and act on it. You've got to say, Lord, if I really believe that you died for my sins, where does that put me? If he died for my sins, that means that I've got sin. How do I take advantage of that death? I've got to repent of my sins. I've got to turn away from wickedness. I've got to surrender my will and my ways to the Lord. And then I've, as, as he was buried, I get buried in the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus. It's the only saving name. But he didn't stay in the grave. And we don't stay in the grave. We don't hold people underwater. But what that tells us is that it doesn't stop there. It didn't stop in the grave for him. It doesn't stop in the watery grave for us. But as he rose again, we are filled with his spirit and we have that newness of life as well. That is the likeness of his resurrection. You see, if Jesus didn't rise again, Paul said it pretty strongly in 1 Corinthians. He said, in this life we are of all men most miserable. But it's, it's more than that. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, then that means that some of the things that he said were untrue. If he didn't defeat death, hell, and the grave, then so many of the things he said he was going to do, he said, you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up. He obviously spoke enough about being resurrected that the scribes and Pharisees knew about it. So he'd made those statements in enough situations that people knew that he believed that he could come back from the dead. It scared the Pharisees enough to put guards on the tomb. It was silly because trying to stop God doesn't usually work too well. But he had made those statements. And if he did not come through, then he was a liar. And if we cannot trust his words about the resurrection, then which words can we trust? And if we can't trust the Lord, then what good is the gospel? So resurrection is crucial to our experience because we have confidence in him. We have confidence in his word. But not only that, even if he was sinless and he died in our place and went to the grave and that was it, then the grave would still be our last station. It would still be where life comes to an end would be in the grave. But he was not able to be held. And he said, if you will obey my word, if you will walk with me, if you will stay under that covering of my blood and my grace and my mercy, then when that time comes, the grave won't hold you down as well. Amen. And it does not matter whether you're buried, whether you're lost at sea, whether you got eaten by a tiger. When the day comes, he's going to be able to resurrect us to be forever with the Lord. Amen. That is the hope of the church. That's why Paul said, encourage one another with these words. That's why he said, death, you've got no sting anymore. That which is so fearful. You see, we're not, you know why man is afraid of death? They don't know what's coming. They're doing everything they can. 
they're looking for different techniques and different health approaches and different treatments and therapies and ideas and philosophies to prolong natural life. There are people who've had bodies frozen in the hope that at some point they'll be able to bring them back from the dead. But even if they can bring them back from the dead, they're going to die again. Now, I don't think they can bring them back, but I might be proven wrong. But even if you're in the freezer for 50 years and they're able to defrost you and bring you back from the dead, you've still got an appointment. The magnet still pulls. It's still there because sin is the issue, not humanity. Sin is the issue, not physical life. And no matter how much mankind should prolong his life to make him... And I'm not against being healthy, but sooner or later, you can eat kale every day of your life if you want to. That would probably make me want to die, but... If that's your plan, because you want to be healthy, go for it. But still, you have an appointment. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die. Somewhere on your calendar, there is a date. There is a time. It doesn't matter how old you may get. It doesn't matter how good your genes are or how strong your family lineage is or how much longevity you do or do not have. There is an appointment you have. But how that appointment is kept depends on the choice that I make in this life. If I choose to walk with him, if I choose to have that resurrection power in my life right now, then I'm not afraid of that appointment. I'm not afraid of that appointment. You know, my, I often joke with my family members in my dad's family and my mum's family, there's not a lot of men still. There's plenty of ladies still alive, but not a lot of men. My dad's the only man left on his side of the family. There are none left on my mum's side of the family. So if you're planning an 80th birthday party for me, just hold on for a while. Let's, let's get there first. But I'm not afraid of those things. I'm not afraid of what the end of this life will bring because our hope is built upon the promises of God's Word. And if He said, I will rise again, and He did it, then I'm confident that if He said, when I come back, you'll go to be with me as well, then that is my hope. And if you're afraid of death this morning, you need to have a good look at your relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not saying you should desire death. I love my life. There's some things I might like to change, but we are blessed in this country. Life is not that hard. But when that time comes, several people I've seen recently talk about family members passing on to be with the Lord that were churchgoers. And the let me tell you something about funerals. I don't like funerals any more than anybody else does. But there is a big difference between the funeral of somebody that knows the Lord and somebody that doesn't. And I've been to both. And if I have to choose, I know which one I want to go to. Because when you go to the funeral of somebody that's washed in the blood, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Spirit, there's, there's loss and there's sadness because they've been separated from us. But there's comfort. And there's hope and there's joy because we know that they've gone to be with the Lord and that in a little while we're going to rendezvous with them again and be reunited in Jesus' name. But when you go to that funeral where there is no hope, where there is, they don't know what's coming, it is a completely different feeling. But we need to make that decision before it is too late. If you've never been filled with the Holy Ghost this morning, you need resurrection power. If you believe that Jesus rose on the morning of the third day, that's fantastic. But it takes more than just believing that. You need to have that spirit in you. 
You need to have that power. He said, if the spirit that raised Christ from there, what did he say? He said, if it dwells in you. There's a big difference between coming into his presence and having his presence within. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. There's there's difference between getting wet on the outside of your body and drinking water. One may get you a little bit clean. The other one gives you life. And when we come into the Lord's house and we feel his presence, that's awesome. But this is not just an external thing. It needs to be resident. If the spirit dwells in you, if it lives in you, then it will raise you up on that last day. Stand with me if you would this